Hello, darkness, my old friend. It's been some time. I uh, moved out of my apartment. I finished my second year of college. I went to Tennessee. I went to North Carolina. I I hiked a mountain. I saw the Great Smoky Mountains for the first time. It's been a very long and thoughtful period here since I've since I've done an episode. And um I can do a lot of excuses, but but in general I've I've just neglected it. I haven't made it a priority. And uh I don't want to do a disservice to my guests. Um and and honestly it's just been sort of a a weird a weird period where I haven't I haven't felt the need to talk to myself on a mic and I've missed it for sure it's it's always a different avenue to to talk out my thoughts and I miss getting feedback from people and I miss making connections but school got very busy and my life got very very busy and uh, that's the that's the that's what I decided to do when I started this is 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 balance all of those things. I don't I don't think it's a huge deal, but I think I I think I, I I'd like to be more consistent. And this is an episode I've had for a minute. I had to get a new microphone as well because my other one broke. And this uh episode's audio actually was corrupted. So I lost that for a minute. Didn't even think I was gonna be able to publish it, but thankfully um my guest Daniel had a copy of it. And I'm very, very happy about that. So yeah, th- this chat is with uh my friend Daniel from Toronto. He's a student in, in the university as well. And uh he, he wrote a blog post about um existentialism a bit and it caught my eye. And so we, we got to chatting. We got to chatting and it was very lovely. So this is um I'm feeling a little sick as well, so pardon that. This is uh probably the th- second or third to last episode of this season before I fully give my summer to Tony Hawk and uh, travel but I hope you enjoy this and anybody who's listening I appreciate you still listening I'm I'm excited to keep this going I'm excited for what I've done thus far and I, I've got some some really cool guests that I'm that I'm eager to talk to soon so here it is I hope all is well with everyone and I hope you enjoy my discussion with Daniel snags by telling people they're being recorded daniel yes. <laughs> you are being recorded yes and i i acknowledge that i wonder what the laws would be like across canada and the states like that then is it two party idea. consent oh, one is... party consent etc if it's an international conversation i have no idea i wonder do you see me moving right now yes okay yes. because for some reason my video of myself is a little laggy it's just a frozen, uh, it's just frozen. No, your video is coming in pretty clean, and so is your audio. So, What in the world? That's good. I got my mic all worked out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe I can, um, I don't know how I can quickly, okay, maybe I'm if just... I turn it on. 
Uh, okay. Do I look the same as I did? Yeah. Perfect. Okay, Perfect. now we have a nice video of both of us. Okay. Perfect. You ready to get going? Sure. Let's do this. I wrote a lot of notes about your article. Fantastic. But first, tell me, tell, me, uh, tell me a bit about yourself. Like, what are you doing in school and stuff? Yeah, so I'm, my name's Daniel. I am in Canada, in Toronto currently, but I grew up in Windsor, actually. Ooh. So just across the river from Detroit. So I spent a lot of time in Michigan growing up. Oh, very cool. Just very for shopping, cool. go to the DIA every once in a while, maybe go to a Tigers game. So I have a oh, bit yeah. of that cross-border relationship. And now I've been in Toronto for the last four years or so. And I've been doing my PhD in what is essentially biochemistry at the University of okay. So it's been pretty chill. It's a lot and of you flexibility. like that? Yeah, yeah. It was actually a bit of a, a struggle at the beginning. I've written on some other of my pieces just that that transition, I guess, to adulthood was quite mm -hmm. tough. So just figuring out how to live on your own, to accept that you're growing older, that time only goes in that one direction. So that was a bit of a struggle. Once I got past that, I feel like it's been a great opportunity to explore not only my interest in science, everything just that's coming out of my brain these days. Could you put um, your other headphone in because your hands are like hitting it? Yes. And it's making a little bit of feedback. Perfect. Perfect. That's perfect. How did that, um, like, what was your pause with time? Did you just not really understand it? Did it just feel kind of like, I mean, I guess I can understand because I'm only, I'm only 19, yes. just as a disclosure. And I'm in my second <laughs> year of college. Yes. Um, and so I've definitely felt the same thing where time just kind of feels infinite when you're a little kid and you don't really think about it. And then you have to understand the very number of days. So is it like that sort of thing or what? Oh, I was aware of this from when I was a kid. So I fought it <laughs> for a very long time. I remember the first moments. I don't know exactly how old I was, but maybe around eight, maybe 10. I was like, I'm going to die one day, and death is like the absence of existence. I had that very conscious thought, and I used to think about it on the shower or before I would go to bed, these moments alone. And it would periodically come back into my life, and it'd be very scary, but I would just drown it out with distractions, basically, with school, right. with TV, video games, etc. When I came to Toronto, I didn't have that anymore because I was living on my own now. So all my safety nets and my comforts of home that would make me feel kind of like coddled in a blanket, those dissipated. And then I was just face to face with, am I willing to take this next step like on my own volition or is the universe going to pull me kicking and screaming across that, that threshold? And I think I ended up just taking that step myself. And since then, I realized the other side's not that scary. So... That's where I am now. So now you're just sort of comfortable with, with time's linear sort of, sort of fashion? Yeah, it, it comes in waves occasionally, but it used to be that I would have, let's say, a three-month period of my life where I would just be almost paralyzed with this kind of fear or existential dread. And it would just eat me up. I would, I would lose my appetite. All of a wow. sudden, I would evaluate how good a piece of art was or a movie or a TV show by how much it would make me forget about my own mortality. That was my new threshold for evaluating any sort of experience. But I don't know. I've, I've tried contemplating mindfully about my own mortality. And that's brought about a change in perspective a bit where 
it's going to happen. So then I can either grow to accept it or I can try to ignore it. But that seems less fulfilling just to ignore it. Absolutely. And I've definitely had the same thought where it's like certain movies and music don't like challenge the feeling enough. Like I can still like it still feels like kind of phony, I guess. So it's pushed it's pushed me to get into more like realistic art in general, like songs that are longer and more like abstract rather than ones that are just a simple chorus and things like that or movies that movies that focus heavily on like the human experience rather than, you know, like superhero movies. But (laughs) then you have to come to a certain point where like both are good. Like there's definitely there's definitely always a place for, you know, like simpler things. I agree. So So once I found that I moved through that, I could now revisit those other experiences more genuinely rather than using them as a crutch. Because when there's simply yeah. abstraction, then you can't engage with it at a different level. Now you, you come in as a, a wiser person. I mean, put that in quotation marks because who knows how I'm going to look back on 25-year-old me when I'm 40. Mm-hmm. I might think I'm still a dumb kid from that perspective. Right. But right now I feel like I've, I've lived through something. And so you can go back and you can appreciate that moment, but you know you're in this context where you have a broader perspective on. And that's, I guess, what the piece really dealt with is how do you decide to structure your life when you become really aware of all the horrible things happening in the world? Do you still distract yourself? Do you still try and just accept and focus on just each day as it comes? Or do you start thinking a little bit more broadly, geographically, temporally, et cetera? That's the tension. Yeah, I definitely feel that. My my main like comparison with that is like, the thing that the thing that I can tell myself is like I'm always searching for an answer. Like I always just want like an answer to something. Like I want there to be like, okay, that's why I feel that way. Or like, you know, like that's how that way of the world works. And then you just have to realize like however we're here, whatever did that, like <laughs> we are we are wired in a way that we want all these answers to questions that don't have answers. And that's yeah. such a bizarre thing to like think about but it's also very liberating yeah when you realize it because i don't know the way i've kind of come to understand it is i don't want to say like there's a reason for everything because that can get kind of like spiritual and people you know and then faith comes into question but i genuinely believe that in terms of just like evolution and how being came to be like being wants to keep being (laughs) and like everything that we do even the shitty stuff like that happened naturally yeah and i i think that's a really weird distinction that's been made especially like to some of the stuff you talk about in your piece like we talk about war and hatred and murder and rape and like all these horrible things that happen and of course you can't justify them as like personally or societally but like those things happen naturally. Yeah. The Humans distinction... naturally hate. So the idea that like there's a utopia where nobody hates or there's a place where like nobody murders or like, you know what I mean? Like it just, it just doesn't make sense to us. Like I could, we couldn't ever actually see that because it just doesn't, it, it hasn't happened and it could. And maybe that's, maybe that's the rest of the evolution of humans is that we do get to that place. But so far, you know, <laughs> 
and, and it's just interesting to think about it that way because you know what we consider to be bad like i've been asked so many times like if you if you could steal something from a store and have no repercussions and nobody could see it like would you still do it and it just shows like how constructed a lot of morals are but still there's something inherent that made us construct morals the way that they are potentially so you know what I, do you see what i'm saying do you follow yeah, yeah, yeah. no definitely it's a funny distinction to say that humans are not part of the natural world that's that's humanism to think that humans are somehow super to the rest of the world that we're right. above it and that we can judge everything else we can use everything however we see fit so there's no repercussions for how we interact with the natural world but we are part of the natural world we make tools like other animals do we construct things like other animals do and Obviously, we're more intelligent, but it's a difference in degree, not in kind. We're just these animals. And obviously, throughout animal evolution, starting around 600 million years ago, certain behaviors have been selected for. And I've actually looked at that as well as a justification for being way more compassionate for other people. Once you take into account biological determinism, and then societal determinism of how where you grow up affects how you behave, it becomes a lot harder to judge people for the what we would say are negative actions. And Absolutely. once you recognize that people born into poor communities are more likely to commit crimes and people, just humans in general as animals, often can be inward looking and try to satisfy their own material needs first. Once you take all those things into account and then add in social interactions and how those manipulate people, your teachers growing up, how your parents raised you, etc. I start to understand why I am the way I am. And if I can understand why I am the way I am, everybody else has a story behind their, their life as well, behind their lived experiences. So morality, you're right. It, we arbitrarily define things because we need that to sleep at night, I think. To be able to say that I could judge you for doing something bad, even though the only thing preventing me from doing the same thing as you was maybe how I was raised or something about my genetic predisposition at the level of personality. And that's a scary thought, I think, for most people to think that the only thing separating them from a literal Nazi was the fact that they weren't born in pre-Nazi Germany at that time. That's a scary right. thought. We want to think we're inherently good or bad, but I don't think that's something that people can be in that way. And I think a lot of it's our obsession with like individuality. Like we want to feel that our me is the only me there ever is or ever will be right at this exact moment. Yeah. Like, and so anybody acting differently than all of the things that we've come, like, I'll just finish that thought. Yeah. Like anybody acting differently than the way that we act, we're just like confused. Naturally, we're like, what? Like if someone doesn't like something mm -hmm. we like, we're like, and people get angry about it. They're like, you don't like that movie? Why don't you like that movie? And it's like, it's it doesn't make any sense to get mad at someone for not liking something. No, and I understand. So then, so then my question just gets deeper, you know. And like, I've I've tried to just get through like those surface level questions. Like, if I love someone and they tell me they don't like a movie that I really love, I will immediately feel like confusion. I'll be like, I love you, but you don't love something that I love. So why is yes. that the case? And so then I have to ask, well, what the hell is it in me? that makes me feel that way. Like why, why am I so like, why is that so like close to me? You know? And it's because it feels good to love the same thing as other people and to talk about it and to communicate. And I think just like at the end of it, it's just like, 
I don't know. I'm trying. I try to boil down things as much as possible just to have like a base. And it's just communication. Like all everything we do is just another means of interacting with other people. Even if it's something that feels independent or like inward looking, we're doing that so that we can function better in all of this. Yeah. And so I, I guess that makes sense when thinking about like feeling offended that someone doesn't like something that you like or, or even like, like I, I let, I let go of so much anger and like, like if someone cuts me off on the highway, I have no, no anger, no, no upset feelings towards them at all because it's like, there could be so many different variables in what's going on in their day that made them do what they just did. Mm-hmm. They could just be a person that I wouldn't want to spend my time with. Yeah. And even if that's the case, even if the, even if they're a person with different values than I am, who I consider to be bad or who I consider to be like not as not as close to themselves as I think we should be, I still have no room for hatred or like anything in there. And so it's so strange seeing people get mad or like going to the store and wanting to speak with the manager and like crazy things like that. It's like, I don't know. So I'll take you one further then. So I, I wrote earlier about two stories. One was Omar Kadir. It was a story that was bigger in Canada. I'm not sure if you heard much about it in the States. I haven't. But this was a person who was raised by a Al-Qaeda operative in Canada okay. and then brought over to Iraq. And as a child around the age of 10, 12, etc was basically indoctrinated into the Al-Qaeda system and became a child soldier. And then when he was 16, was engaged in a firefight with an American troop uh, dispatch and was accused of throwing the grenade that killed an American soldier and then was arrested and held in Guantanamo uh, as a child originally for somewhere between eight and 10 years. I don't know the exact number. And then that became a huge human rights kerfuffle because he was detained as a child without representation for a long time, etc., on the grounds that he was a terrorist. That was their justification. And then in Canada, there was quite a few protests saying that he should be extradited to Canada to serve out his sentence, because Canada, by not doing that, is complicit in how horribly he is being treated by the Americans. The long story short really is that there arose a public debate over how he should be treated, because once he finished his his sentence in Canada, he sued the federal government of Canada and won a settlement uh, in the millions of dollars. And you had two sides that emerged. One side was like, well, this guy is a a terrorist. Why are we giving him money? He killed one of our boys. He killed one of our men. If anything, he should, you know, have the death sentence, etc. And the other half's like, well, he was a child. You can't hold him culpable for his actions when he was raised from such a young age to be like that. Who else, if they were in the same situation, could safely say that they wouldn't behave like that? Now, some people like to point out that even in those scenarios, not everybody grows up to be the, you know, the evil person in a stereotypical action movie, you know, the Middle Eastern terrorist. And they appeal to that stochastic nature of human existence that not everybody in what seems to be the same situation will become that evil person. And therefore, if not everybody does that, you can hold accountable those people that do become awful people. But that doesn't seem quite justifiable. I honestly cannot say for myself, if I was raised from a young age to be an Al-Qaeda operative and a child soldier, that I would have it in me to say no. Those are your formative years. That's how you see the world. 
So you talk about the person cutting you off in traffic, but I once tried to deal with this and I advocated that this person should be forgiven, especially because they were no longer a threat to society. In Canada, since he was in, uh, in prison, there was no signs that he was still dangerous, that he was still radicalized in his thinking. So then at that point, if he's not a harm or does not present a harm to society, then he should be, first of all, free. And second of all, yeah, he, he was tortured for a number of years with Canadian uh, support, more or less. And he should be remunerated for that as well. So once you start thinking about where people come from, it becomes quite easy to forgive the type of person that so many others would call a monster, like a literal monster. I certainly agree with you. Um, I'm going to digest that for a second. <laughs> it's a tough um, one. Yeah, I mean, I'm taking it similarly that, like, as empathetic as we can be, we can never not be ourselves. Like, we can never actually be another person. Yeah. So no matter what, like, that... That's a non-question. Just like you were talking about at the beginning, there are certain questions that can't be answered. To conceive of yourself as different than you are, you're fundamentally not, then not you. Right. You are who you are because of everything that's kind of... That's exactly. a bit like Spinoza and how he conceived of human identity. Mm -hmm. You are this bundle of experiences and memories and collective actions and desires in this one package. And that's, that's what you are. And from that emanates necessarily your actions and the way you interact with the world. Right. So where does it... I mean, I think in his situation, it's also especially interesting because he was doing what he believed like to be right you know what i mean it wasn't like he was raised as like a criminal does that make sense like it's no, not it like sense. like it it's like sense. say say my dad raises me and he's like hey we need to steal stuff it's not bad and we could get caught people don't like when we do this but i want you to steal stuff with me because then you're growing up knowing that it's not very good but you're still you know deciding to do it so all the while you know that it's bad whereas in his situation he could have just been told these are very bad people who want to hurt us. Yeah. We we need you to do this. This is what we do. This is how life is. No, Without having any outside perspective of like peace or like, like he's like, "Oh, this is this is yeah. how life is. We we have to destroy like the other person." And so I think that's that's a very peculiar case because like in that way, you can't say that you would be you would who's going to just like say, "You know what, dad? No. Like I don't think it's right that I fight these people." It's hard to imagine, actually, if you honestly look at the scenario, that you would be the one in a million person to violently say no to not only your father, your parents, but an entire group of people that is your community. And I don't want to get overly political with this, but I mean, even from their perspective, you can see the Americans as invaders. What the idea of a, a freedom fighter versus a terrorist is a fairly arbitrary label, depending on which country you exist in. So from their perspective, I mean, the Americans have been conducting drone strikes and air raids and, and land war in that part of the world for, for decades. And who knows how many relatives have been killed in this. From their perspective, not only is he raised as a child to believe this, but in a more quote-unquote real sense, they're fighting off invaders. So some people have also defended him from that perspective, saying 
he can't be a terrorist. He was an enemy combatant, and that's different than a terrorist. So that's an interesting argument. Now, what I want to follow that up with then, some people are very willing to defend him. I wouldn't say, it's like a 50-50 maybe. I don't have a statistic, but there's people on the one side, people on the other side, usually depending on if you're right or left, quote unquote. But people are then more willing to cast the blame on the father. The father is the person that indoctrinated them to say he's the real monster. He's the person that took an innocent child or, you know, quote unquote, <laughs> innocent child and made them into what some people would call terrorists. Now, why do we have to stop the line of reasoning with Omar Khadir, the child, when the father may have gone through a very similar upbringing themselves? What is it about turning 18 all of a sudden that that's when we hold you personally responsible for the way you behave? What if it was just a whole line of of parents going back or what if you know at that point what stops you from forgiving literally the worst people in the world as written in the western canon when you start considering that people are the product of how they're raised their genetic disposition and then a certain degree of chance actually those random encounters in life that shape you in ways that you might not even realize <laughs> so that's one argument i didn't see much online was defending the father himself. But if you can defend the child, if Omar Khadir was not arrested or detained after that firefight when he was 16, it's conceivable that he would grow up to be the 30-year-old father who then puts his child through a similar training camp. Exactly. Why not? You can and almost it's, say it's... Yeah, no, continue. Then it's just a question of like, well, where did it begin? You know, where did and the then, hate... Is that the person finish? that we hold culpable for like, like all of the society's sins you know and then we're like wait a second but that one guy that one guy would we have acted differently <laughs> like even exactly. if we find even if we find that one guy whatever exactly. happened if even like at the at the root of what war is like just like this is my area i'm uncomfortable that there's someone else in my area yeah go yeah. <laughs> like well, like war maybe all incredibly the, justifiable yeah like all the all the peaceful the peaceful ideals we have and no one wanting like any sort of war, like that all came about because we had war to ruminate on in the first place. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's so true. the ar arguments that like we've done things wrong, well, not things wrong, but like arguments that like fundamental things like violence and like hunting and things like that, that those were like missteps just doesn't make much sense to me because like, it's not like there were people like, when we were hunting for animals and we needed food, it wasn't like there were, I doubt there were people that were like, hey, let's, uh, let's not, not do that. No, that's true. It that's took time true. to like think on it, you know? So it's, it's just weird that like very quickly you can flip the status quo of what's good and what's bad and what's like, and people get so mad about it because that's their, that's their identity. Like those are the things they hold really close to themselves. And the thing I've learned best about, really anything is like it's just way more complex than we give it credit for like we want way more specific answers than we're entitled to like everything about war and the way people act and crimes and like the treatment of others and people who have who commit infidelity and like anything anything it's just way more complex than just like in, like in terms of infidelity if someone cheats it's way more complex than just saying that person cheated they're a bad person you know like it, there's just so much more to it and it's just 
it's strange because I'm balancing that where I'm like, that's how people should think. People should think that there are all these complexities. But also, there are people who either can't or like are permanently unwilling to think in that way. And so then I ask myself, well, then is it natural for there to be a kind of person who can't see the complexities of everything? Is that person a necessity? Because if everybody saw everything as entirely complex, I don't know what the hell we'd be doing. Well, that's true, too. And I think you bring up a really good point, because in writing, let's say, on Omar Khadir, as an example, and I take my position that people should be more compassionate to, to him and other people in their situation, I find myself arguing against the person for holding a belief. And then I think to myself, if I can forgive a, a literal terrorist, why can't I forgive the person that is not willing to forgive that person? So it gets very recursive right. when you start thinking, not only are you forgiving this one person, you're forgiving the people that don't forgive that person. And then you get the paradox of, of tolerance, I guess. And people have written about this. Uh, the most recent person to write about it, the name is eluding me now. Karl Popper talks about this, where it's a bit of a, a liberal idea or a neoliberal idea that we should just be loving and tolerate everything. Yeah, if you tolerate everything, people have written that naturally, the people that are very vocal and intolerant will win out in that area. And so then it becomes potentially to maintain some sort of decency at all and to allow people to be tolerant in the first place, you need to be intolerant towards those that are intolerant of others. And that's the line it's... you can't draw. So you can't, you can freely express yourself as long as you're not impinging on other people's ability to freely express themselves. So that's where that line comes down. Mm -hmm. I guess the question I have is then like, is it, is, how do I even say this? Is it bad that there is like badness? Cause it's like, there's good and bad. We see good and bad. We see evil and good. And then like we can point those things out, but then there's another layer of like, well, bad, badness existing is a bad thing. Like there shouldn't be evil. Evil should be eradicated and goodness should come about. You know, that's like another layer mm -hmm. of like discerning the two. And so the question is like, should there be, first of all, is there such a thing as inherency? Is there such a thing as like what is? And then it's like, okay, well, is there supposed to be bad? Because, you know, there's a classic, just a classic saying, like, without bad, you wouldn't even know what good is. You wouldn't even know. So yeah, it's that's like a relativist argument. Yeah, yeah. And relativism can get very annoying. <laughs> but <laughs> but I don't know. It's it's very important to think about. Like, there's there's. There's something making all of us do something. And that pushes us to ask that of everything of good and bad like okay well mm -hmm. then there must be an inherent good an inherent bad you know what did the first person feel <laughs> i don't I see that leap necessarily so i think talking about inherent good or bad or like capital b bad capital g good mm -hmm. those ontological questions become quite difficult to decipher so looking backwards i'm quite willing to forgive people because you do start looking at their trajectories and what led them to those actions and it seems like it's, it's a question of history at that point, almost. You can ex understand all the dominoes that fell to get to that point. But then the more 
I think, interesting question, once you accept that, if you're willing to accept that, is what do you do in the present? Because then you're at this, at the front of the, the train on the tracks going forward, and you don't really know what's going to be written going forward. So it becomes a difficult question. So how do we act once you start realizing that people are kind of constrained in some ways? How, for example, more practically speaking, how do you conceive of a justice system if you're willing to forgive everybody because you understand that their background, their lived right. experiences led to that right. So for that, I think it becomes more of a question of practicality. Even though the person that commits a, a crime might be just as much a victim of their circumstances and everything that led to that moment, if they continue to present a danger to other people, then that's a moment where you should become intolerant or intolerant of that. So you right. separate them from society until you feel like they have become rehabilitated. But then the key point of a justice system should be rehabilitation. Recognizing that that person, you can call them a victim or anyways, just understanding that they behaved in a way that's consistent with the way they've been treated, they were raised, everything else that goes into a person. And then if a person does not present a clear danger to other people, then they should never be imprisoned in the first place because then you're violating on their rights to develop themselves, to right. express themselves, etc. So obviously all drug offenses should not be imprisonable. That being said, if a person, if it becomes a health issue in terms of addiction or something like that, then society should provide the resources for that person to be able to pursue if they, if they wish a clean bill of mental health or physical health. So in the way I see the world, there'd be way less people imprisoned. And it becomes down, it comes down to discourse about what should the ideals of a society be, recognizing that the people themselves are less of what needs to be changed, the more the systems that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. I think the drug offense is an interesting question because like, do we get to a point where we should just let people kill themselves like just let people drink themselves to death or let people you know heroin addicts let them kill themselves doing it or even situations where one who deals drugs or one who not necessarily deals them but um poses as a threat to someone else in terms of like being able to to have somebody else be have those drugs and then it's like okay well if one person wants to kill themselves, should we just let whoever wants to kill themselves kill themselves? Because then it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> no, no, it's so. like, well, hold on. We still have to have like a, like we still have to have something to say. Like, okay, well, people shouldn't be on drugs. Like that's something that we believe. That's something we say. Like people shouldn't be on drugs. Like that still needs to be there. But then if it's, I don't know, because then it's a question of like, what is rehabilitation? Like, is it the fact that doing drugs literally makes your body decompose quicker like is that our basis you know like maybe somebody is happier and wants to be on drugs and then die that way so it's it's yeah, just so interesting to, to think out, actually yeah so i think the first thing again is they have to come from a point of compassion so generally i think the penal system in the united states is i think worse for this than canada <laughs> but canada's not great either <laughs> it's only recently that we've uh, stopped prohibition on marijuana for example okay so that is fully legal now, Canada-wide, not just from medicinal use, but recreational use as well. 
So you got to stop moralizing the problem as well. So with the opioid epidemic, for example, in the United States, you have people calling not just for banning things or just increased police crackdown, etc. They're just asking for doctors out of a point of compassion or a place of compassion to provide prescription opioids for people addicted to opioids. But they would provide a prescription for something that's less likely to cause an overdose. Right. So like saying like methadone, saying that can wean you off. And that's the same principle behind, let's say, a safe injection site. The idea is people are doing what they're doing for a reason. It doesn't have to make sense to us as a non-addict, but addiction fundamentally changes the brain chemistry. Right. And then if you think of the people that are more likely to become addicted, those are people that are dealing with chronic pain. Those are people that grew up in poorer neighborhoods and have had a lot of access to this. For the same like tobacco, these are people that have been targeted since they were children with very aggressive marketing campaigns equating tobacco with being cool. So in all of these cases, I refuse to blame the person that becomes an addict. Yeah, for sure. If you're willing to accept that addiction is a mental health problem and then the outcome of an addiction can be also a physical health problem, then you stop moralizing the person and tell them just to pull themselves up by the bootstraps because that doesn't work. No, absolutely not. I've always, I've always believed that addiction is not that cut and dry at all. Exactly. So then you have to look at what interventions buy you time to get the person into some sort of therapy. Uh, so providing prescription opioids, safe injection sites to cut down on uh, transmissible diseases that could kill these people. Back in the day with HIV, there were four risk groups and one of them was heroin users. So people that would share intravenous needles. And that was a really big risk factor for HIV. Back in that day, if you were able to provide safe injection sites for these people, you would have saved thousands of lives. So once you consider all these things now, you mentioned personal choice comes into this as well. And you can ex extend this to addiction. You can extend this to even something like suicide. Do people have the right to do this? So I don't think anybody should be physically coerced, held at gunpoint to go into rehab. But you need to, I guess, as a society, provide as many options as you can to give people at least a choice regarding some of these things. Uh, education, and but compassion is a big one. I imagine that can go a really far, far way if society, just as a collective, said, it's not your fault that you're doing this. And we're going to use taxpayer money, so a socialist kind of model for this, to provide you with access to rehabilitation centers, with access to a cognitive behavior therapist to work on addiction, access to a physician to work on any of the other health aspects you might have, access to counselors to help you find a job or a place to live, et cetera. And I think if you could do this, you would, I mean, the problem wouldn't disappear. I think a fundamental feature of life is that there will always be suffering because no human is born and goes through their entire life without random chance impinging on your life in a way that causes suffering or just a necessary outcome of your genetic background or your otherwise your physical situation. Tsunamis will always happen. People will always be born with genetic disorders that cause disease. So suffering will always exist, but I think society, we can try and mitigate the suffering that comes about through these forces and recognize that it could be just as easily us in the position of the person suffering rather than us thinking about what we're giving up to help them. We should just be thankful that we don't need to be helped as much as they are currently. It is, it is so easy to be thankful. Yeah, once you start thinking about some of these things, I mean, 
Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's also sometimes I think so satisfying for people to to be upset at others because that perpetuates the myth that anything that you have to be thankful for, you've earned it. Exactly. So why be thankful yeah. for something that you've earned? Well, no one's, according to the model that I've, I kind of propose, no one earned anything. It was just the necessary outcome of everything that has happened. The only reason why going forward we need to do the things we do is because we don't know what's going to happen. We're at that precipice. We're constantly falling forward and catching ourselves with our feet. And we have this momentum and we don't know where we're going. At some point, if history continues to go and we have more of a, a Hegelian universe, someone at the end of the tunnel is going to stand back looking on everybody and understand exactly why everything happened. And that person would be a god. That, that would be God with his notes, knowing exactly why everything happened. Until that point, we're, we're just in this stream of human participants in this universe. I think we've done all right. I think, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes you have to catch yourself when you think that sometimes as well. I think that is, again, the idea of struggle or acceptance. That idea can be like a sedative. You know, just no, yeah, I, de- I definitely, from, from reading your piece, I understand yeah. your, your criticism of my saying that. I just mean, I think we've done all right. I sh- let me elaborate. Yeah, I yeah. don't mean we've done all right in terms of like, but that mean I think we've done all right in trying to figure out why things are the way they are. Philosophically, I think we've done all right. That's what I mean. I mean, it. it's incredible. Like just learning about like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, just the fact that they were thinking those things that long ago is just such a beautiful thing. There's two That's perspectives what I mean. on that though. How long yeah. ago was 2000 years ago, right? If you think right. about grand right. scheme of the world, we're still infants. Right. But, and I don't mean to actually say that you shouldn't be actually satisfied or happy. Okay, you shouldn't be satisfied, but that doesn't mean you should be upset either. I think that is the dichotomy. Struggle brings about with it, I think, a lot of negative feelings in the person who's struggling. A lot of frustration. Burnout is so common. And you have people that abandon movements all the time. Think about the, the Occupy Wall Street movement. How long can people struggle in a camp city when they're being harassed by so many people before they just give up, you know? So struggling can bring about that, but the perspective I'm trying to cultivate in myself these days is that if you move through the tunnel of acceptance first, then it's almost as if you can struggle with fewer repercussions for yourself. Because, and maybe I'm tempting fate here, but I almost think like I can't be hurt as much as I used to be able to be. I feel less vulnerable because I've accepted a certain degree of randomness in the universe. I've accepted a certain degree of suffering is always to be expected. And from that perspective, if I suffer or struggle rather against the world and I'm being back or I feel disappointed, etc., that's been already taken into account in the equation. Then you approach problems less naively and maybe you'll fail. I think we started our conversation with the idea that you can never achieve a perfect world. Mm-hmm. Yet despite that, struggling for it seems like the only justifiable justifiable thing to do. Even if you know you'll fail, it also seems like a very human thing to do. Is Despite knowing it's impossible to give it your best, to open yourself up to a certain degree of suffering, that could, that could work. But you have to think practically as well about how to keep that up in the long run. You don't want to be the person that gets desperate after six months and then just blows something up. 
to prove a point, just to say that you've done something. That's that doesn't work either. So to struggle, you need to think long term. And that I think needs some satisfaction or at least acceptance as to how the world is in the in the moment. You said it. <laughs> I mean uh. I think the best thing that we can do is be good to ourselves first and understand our the best we can what our consciousness actually is. And then from there, we can start to discern all of the craziness. Because, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Because say I'm not, I don't have peace with my reality. I don't have peace with what's going to happen to me when I die. I don't have any good idea of what that is. And then I get hit by a car and die. If you were to ask me right after I died, like, how'd that go? It'd be bad. It'd be <laughs> like, I didn't know. I didn't know. But, like, right now, if I got hit by a car today, like, I'm okay with that. <laughs> like, I think, like, right now, I'm at a place where I don't take that randomness as, like, an attack from the universe. I just take that as it is. And so it's like, you know, I'm good. Like, it would suck. I'd rather not be hit by a car today. Exactly. For sure. But, you know, if I was. That's exactly it. That's exactly, I think, the attitude that is so helpful. And I think that's ultimately where I brought myself to with my writing to this point. My first actual ever post that I put up online was entitled Death, Have It Your Way. And it was this thought experiment where you go to the doctor and you have no reason to believe that you're un unhealthy in any way. It's just a routine checkup. And there are one of two possibilities. One, you're diagnosed with a terminal illness that will kill you in one year. And that terminal illness will vary depending on the thought experiment. The second possibility is right at the moment that you would be diagnosed and then have to face that terminal diagnosis, right at that moment you have a ruptured brain aneurysm and you die instantly. Which would you choose? Which would you choose? And this was a thought experiment for me throughout my life to try and get more comfortable with the idea of death, even a tragic death, because I think most people would describe a, a terminal illness in your your teens or in your 20s as a tragic death. And when I ask this question, actually, I get most people saying that they would rather get the instantaneous death. Because facing death and their own mortality in such a visceral way is their own personal version of hell, more or less. What is, what is your answer? My answer, ultimately, I had to concede that there are some terminal diagnoses I wouldn't want to face because they would actually impinge on my ability to fully face my terminal diagnosis. That makes sense. So, yeah. For example, Lewy body dementia is one of the most aggressive forms of neurodegenerative disorders. It comes with a lot of physical side effects, but your brain just kind of melts while you live. That's what right. Robin Williams had. And a yeah. lot, his wife speculated that's what really brought about his, his suicide. So I, I think I would avoid that because my ideal death involves me being somewhat lucid, being able to face that. Yeah that moment. But I think most other, and as you already mentioned, it would not be my preferred thing to do. <laughs> Wouldn't be my preferred way to spend a year of my life. But just about any other one I can think of, it would be something worth living, like your first breakup or moving out of your, your home, your childhood home for the first time to deal with those, those milestones of life, death, even in the Christian faith, not that I'm a Christian, 
was one of the sacraments was to go through your last rites before death. And I think facing your death and accepting that is an important thing. But what you brought up is no one, well, seldomly are people facing a terminal illness. Most of the deaths kind of come unexpectedly. And then you just have to prepare yourself for that in the moment right now. And right. just know that if it, at any moment when it happens, you're, you've optimized your chance for a Precisely. fulfilling experience. But from so, all of this comes your ability to struggle. Because once you've accepted that you yourself, not that you're trivial, not that you don't matter, but that you are fundamentally something that's kind of just existing with no real good cause to, to be existing in the first place, and that there's not much actually preventing the universe from, from just annihilating you. You can think about even on cosmological terms, there's what really prevents one of those stars nearby us in the Milky Way just from blowing up and just obliterating us. Because we're yes. really special and we're we deserve really it. Special. Exactly. We're the, the only humans in the universe. We're the we're only living beings in the universe. <laughs> but once you, once you get your head around that, and it's a struggle, and that's why I also can't expect everybody to be on the struggling train to try and terraform the world so humans can actually live fulfilling lives. Because everybody has their own reasons for their personal anxiety, their personal struggle that they should overcome first before developing the world. And if you do that in succession, if you do that in succession, I think that's probably a recipe for long-term success, more so than the person that is so desperate, driven to their wits ends, who is acting out of like at that moment, self-defense really against the cruel and uncaring world. So you first need to accept that the world is cruel and uncaring and then do your best to imbue it with some modicum of kindness, I guess, and caring for other people and to tackle intolerance that's given towards people and to tackle systems that perpetuate unjust societies and inequitable distribution of resources if you look at our society and how many people are dying because they lack access to health care, lack access to nutritious food, lack access to shelter. And that's just in what we call the free West. When you consider those things, those are all worth struggling against. But I don't think there's anything wrong in just focusing on that internal struggle first before, I guess, evolving to the ability to think on a global stage or even on a local stage. But concerning the, the happiness of everybody in your community. It's just curious because we value the selfless person. If someone's selfless their whole lives and they, they help others and they volunteer and they spend their whole lives not thinking about themselves, we consider that to be a good life lived. Yeah. But like if every single person was completely selfless, Again, like, what would the world look like? That's true. And I think about that a lot because, like, I'm going to school for, like, film. So I don't have any career plans to do anything that's going to drastically change, like, the bigger, big, big, big issues. Like yeah. famine and poverty and racism and what have you. So it's like, am I just being super selfish with my choices? 
you know, and I think it's different because, like, I think movies have their place. So then it's a question of, like, what what altruism is the best altruism? <laughs> you know, and it's like, would, it, would I contribute to the world better if I made peace with myself and did something like film where I can really think about what I'm doing and make things that make people feel and affect a large audience? Or if I were to run into not spending my time doing this and just run into volunteering blindly, you know, I just went to a foreign country and just tried to help, like, which would be better, you know? And it's just, it's weird to think about that. Um, it's, it's really, really hard not to have that, like, responsibility for others who are suffering. No, it's true. So but at the end of the day, I'm just so incredibly selfish when, like, if, if, if you think about it like that, like, I could probably very easily, like, say, like, not buy myself records or clothes or go to any concerts and just save that money up, get a plane ticket, go to a country, help people. But I don't. And no, most and, people don't. So it's and you've like, already alluded to something when you're talking about what, what is going to be the best form of altruism. I think that's, that's a good point. I actually, just two weeks ago, since I kind of was thinking a lot about to struggle or to accept, and I... I end my first paragraph with the thesis that I'll condemn acceptance and I will pursue struggle. I was really thinking in my head like, well, don't I have to do this now? <laughs> don't I have to do this this moment? What am I waiting for? Every moment is a moment that I'm, I'm wasting. It's a moment I could be helping somebody or implementing a plan that can help more people. And I really debated. So where I am in my degree right now, I'm in my fourth year and I'm on a scholarship now that pays me quite well actually. It pays me at a level that I really cannot realistically expect to find on the job market for quite some time. Right. So, and that lasts for another two and a half years. And you might think in some ways science is more of an altruistic thing. I'm helping more people. To be honest, I don't think that's the case. Most science is an ego, egoistic kind of culmination of just human knowledge put together. And a lot of this is not practical things that help people. And a lot of the practical knowledge gets co-opted by pharma pharmaceutical companies that make billions of dollars off of this. And the people that benefit from it are quite minimal compared to how an ideal situation would be. So I was really thinking for two and a half years to stay here and to you know write blog posts and to take photographs and to do my science that really is curiosity based and not with the idea of curing any disease can I justify that? So I had this moment in my head where I'm like, I'm going to tell my boss on Monday that I want to finish up my degree in six months. I have some say as to how long my degree will take. Okay. That was going to be, I was going to tell him, I was going to sit him down. I'm like, you know something, boss man, <laughs> I, I, I want to struggle. I want to struggle. I want to stop this life of acceptance. And then I realized <laughs> I slept and I'm like, geez, that, that's <laughs> a horrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> and then I slept. <laughs> and then I slept. And that's a horrible because if I think about like, okay, sure, I leave in six months, and then what am I going to do? I'm still at a point in my life where I'm developing my, my leadership abilities. I'm developing my contacts. Like for right now, you're a new contact in my life. And I'm, I'm developing skills. I'm developing my way of seeing the world. I'm developing ideas about what is the best way I can intervene with the world. And if I left in six months right now, I'm not done. And... There's probably something to say about you don't have to be in the perfect situation to start a project, but I'm not, I'm not near even a halfway perfect situation. And yet staying here for another two and a half years, what does that let me do? It lets me prepare myself for that transition better. It lets exactly. me 
prepare such that once I graduate, I can hit the ground running. And I have the added bonus of developing financial stability such that when I defend and I finish my PhD and I start struggling full time, let's say, I don't have to give up after six months because I'm broke. It would give me a chance maybe for two or three years to be able to live without working in the capitalist machine. And I can actually dedicate myself full time to organizing people and to starting local community projects. And then maybe after some time, I can develop some sustainability from that. So that's ultimately, I think, where I am now. And I don't think I can blame any person for choosing to accept for all the reasons we've already discussed so far. We're, we, we, are, we are humans. And I say that with an asterisk because, again, I don't want to, I guess, explicitly condone widespread acceptance. I think, I think that's, that's also a risky position to put yourself in just to give yourself an excuse because, again, we're at the present. And if you don't know what's going to happen in the future, we have this at least illusion of free choice. Or as the existentialists would even call it, radical freedom. At this point, I can choose if I wanted to to entirely quit my degree and tomorrow buy a ticket somewhere, just like you've you know, described, and start doing something. I could do that. So I don't want to entirely just give myself a pass. I want to constantly work towards this because I do think, based on my moral thesis, it is what people ought to do. But I guess every person has to decide for themselves when that moment is right that they feel like they're in the position to do so mentally, physically, even financially. Um, that's the only practical way of thinking about it, I guess. I agree. Yeah. I guess we can end it with two questions. Sure. Both of which I haven't asked since I was like 13. But... <laughs> But now I can ask them without being afraid of sounding pretentious because I actually mean them. So first, <laughs> what do you think happens when you die? Oh, sure. Um, I guess if the answer... If anything at all. Yeah, the answer... So I, I told you, I used to dwell on this thought a lot. And for a while, actually, I, I had a legitimate existential thread or existential thought that I was immortal. That I was immortal and that, that and that's a bad thing. Immortality wow. is a scary thing. Uh, there's a post that you can read at some point. It has to do with quantum physics. It's this theory, because honestly, I'm going to say this without much qualification. The physicists of the, of the scientific realm are the most religious. They work so close to the fabric of space and time and the universe that they can conceive of very abstract theories that actually allow for immortality to exist. It's not... So I had, a, I had a post once, and I looked at three different theories in physics that actually state that immortality is possible. And to me, that's no different than religion. That's the escape impulse to pretend like what we're existing in now doesn't matter because mm -hmm. we'll eventually ascend to some sort of afterlife. Yeah. So I was legitimately quite afraid of that for, for several, several months. And then it used to come in waves. And now I think I've come back to the idea that Fundamentally unknowable, I guess, really. Fundamentally, we can't know if we're even existing in a simulation. We can't know. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I right? love it. That's, that's in that piece as well. So you can, you can read a little bit about that. <laughs> but I guess Bayesian probability and you know, just choosing the simplest idea, it's that nothing happens. 
that the consciousness that emanates from your, your neurochemistry and your existence in the world just ceases. And if you've ever been under like general anesthesia, that's what it's like for infinity. Yeah, the best way I have heard it is like the question, do you remember what it was like before you were born? Exactly. No. Mark, Mark Twain has a, a little quote on that when he was asked if he was afraid to die. And he said, well, I was dead for many, many, you know, infinities before I was born. And that didn't do me any harm. So why should I be afraid of re-entering that state? So I also, I, th I find some comfort in that. It, it does take some mental massaging, though, to accept that idea of non-existence. Because fundamentally, the person that asks and ponders that question is existing. So for the existing entity to, to think about non-existence is, it's like that little trick where if you're trying to empathize with a blind person, you have to try and imagining what your elbow sees. Like try looking out your elbow. That's what the blind person sees. Because it's not that they see black or darkness. They see nothing. And being dead isn't just closing your eyes and being quiet. Being dead is nothing. Is nothing. Exactly. So I, it, yeah. And all we want to do is keep being. All we know, want to like, keep being. You talked about that already. There's. I think I actually expanded upon it. I, okay. So yesterday I did a sensory deprivation tank. Really? Float. Yes. Wow. And it was, <laughs> I highly recommend it, especially for you. Yeah, maybe. But, but to be alone with my thoughts with nothing to distract me. Nothing. Man. It's nothing. not even like you get to a point where you're not even like, I'm a person in a bath trying to think. It's just like, I was talking and I didn't, like the inner monologue that I constantly have was just coming out audibly for like yeah, yeah, yeah. extended periods. And it was so bizarre because there's yeah. no light. There's no light at all. Like you can do this and you're not going to see your hand. Yeah. At all. There's no music. There's no sound. It's unless you like the water. But even then you have really thick earplugs. Wow. So there's no sound, no sight. You have no clothing on and you're just suspended because it's full of Epsom salt. So you wow. can't help but float. So you're floating in complete darkness for one hour. And like, it's, it's seriously life changing just because like, that's as close as you're ever going to get to being in the womb. Like, yeah, that's true. Like you're just, you're just like, true. I wonder what it'd be like to be a baby now with these thoughts. Yeah. And it's just, it's weird. It, it, it kind of just cleanses. Like it just kind of weeds out all the stuff. And it's like, what is my, what is this thing? really really care about and it's it was really special it was really really special and that's those were the those were the things that i thought of was first of all what is that's the main question what is not what am i not what is key and what am i going to do with my life am i going to be a writer etc not that not what am i as a person where do i fit into this world and then it goes to what is a person? What is a human? Why are humans different than animals? Blah, 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 blah. Then it goes to what is life? What is thought? What is active consciousness? Right? And then it's... I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to stay on the path. Yeah. And then because it, it goes, why am I alive then like, okay, well, why is there an I in general? What is that consciousness that's happening? And then the very like basis is what is the I? Yeah. What is 
the thing that is making me ask what is me, what is blah, 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 blah. And, like, once you do that, especially through the eyes of, like, Buddhist and, like, other Asian philosophies, like, there's, like, the lowercase self and the capital case self. And, like, me, this body, me talking, my job, my relationships, none of that is me at all. Not at all. The The only thing that I can accurately actually call me is just this thing that cannot be seen or heard. It's just pure, total consciousness. Like, it's just being. It's just the fact that you are being in all these things you're doing just happen to be your brain firing off. And I got to this point where I was picturing me and then I pictured my, my brain. And I was just, I, would, I could just see my brain sitting there firing all these things off that were making me say and think these things. And then I thought, even that's not me. And it's weird because it gets to that place that you just mentioned where to understand what you actually are, it is nothing. It's not the absence of something. So it's not an empty space because that's still something. It's actually nothing. Mm-hmm. Like that's what you, that's what you are. It's just consciousness in general, just the ability to be, and that's what I thought about in there. And without any sort of sense, it's just bizarre. It's really, really bizarre because you can't tell the difference between when your eyes are open and they're not. Besides the feeling of your eyelids, very slightly, but even so, you start to lose that. Mm-hmm. And so you're just forced to just be a brain in a tub and just sit there and be like, that's it. So what what I got from all that was everything is organic. And by that, I mean, like what I've been saying about all the strife that's happened, all the horrible, horrible things that have happened, that every single thing that has happened has happened. So there's no reason for us to say it happened wrong or that it was a mistake or that there's a way that we should be because regardless, every thought that's been had, every political movement, every empire, every murderer, that all happened exactly as it did. And so I think about that. And then I think being wants to keep being, but with other beings because we're not just something that just goes We're something that goes for the sake of, others like around us and i i that's like the only thing that i can like i can like because it's it's hard as humans to not picture our struggles as like a like a scale of like here's my most shallow problems here are my deepest problems and this is where i rest as like an existentialist this is where i feel comfortable living the rest of my life with this as like the cushion in the back. And those are like the only things that I have that I can give that weight to is like that regardless if something created us, regardless if there, there was a before in the first place, like being is. Yeah. Even if it's a simulation, even if it's That's true. Even if it is a simulation, it is it, it is what it is. Like you cannot argue that right now I am being I am doing, I'm touching, I'm like, you know, and the only argument for that is like, well, your definition of being isn't accurate, but then it's like, well, then whose is? Sure. So it's like, I don't know. There's something it's kind of a Descartes when he says to, I, I think, therefore I am. Exactly. That, that's the only thing yeah. you really can hang your head at. Yeah. And then I, and then there's the question, what is the meaning of life? You know, which is the question, but to me. The meaning of life type stuff. <laughs> yeah. 
to me, the meaning of life is my ability to ask that question. <laughs> like, the journey of seeking the meaning to life is the meaning of life, because I don't think there's an answer. There's a lot of privilege I, in that statement, though, too, right? Yeah. I, I think historically, sure. I've, I've tried to argue. I absolutely believe that, because not everyone can do that. Yeah, and that's, I think, where religion comes from and superstition comes from. The people historically and currently who have in a lot of ways been deprived of the privilege of, I guess, grappling with these ideas that are really at the core of, of what it means to be a human and not a human in some special sense compared to any other animal, just, but just to exist as anything. And I think when you don't have that opportunity because you're working 60 hours a week or you're a serf or you're a slave or you're a child soldier or you were born with some sort of chronic debilitating disease or anything like this, not to suggest that these people can't, like don't have the ability to think about this, but sometimes the practical concerns of life and your responsibilities to your families, et cetera, impinge on that ability and make it yeah. so that you can't accept the base conditions necessary to tackle those problems genuinely. Yeah. That's where you need some sort of substitution that's easier to grasp. So rather yeah. than me to conjure up why is anything the way it is, right. God, that's your shorthand. Lower case G, big case G, a bunch of them, one of them, something like that becomes very, very tempting. And so I've recognized a long time ago that my ability even to sit down once a week and to try and write an article on something is a privilege that I have. And even if my life from here emanates or I guess projects to struggling for other people to have that ability, I think that's pretty, pretty fair. Not to say that even other people's ability to think about these things is going to make them happy. But at that point, that's all you can ever fight for, I guess, is the ability for people to pursue their creative endeavors however which way they see fit. And right now, obviously, I think the big problem in the world is how few people have that opportunity. If I even think about my parents, so I was born in Bosnia, but I came to Canada when I was a year and a half old. So I lived a life, relatively speaking, of, of privilege. There was definitely some economic hardships in there, but growing up as an English-speaking white male in, in Canada, I, I don't have too much systemic injustice to, to fight against, aside from just class oppression that exists ubiquitously. Mm -hmm. But if I think about my mother, my mother had me when she was 23 in Bosnia, with a man she had met about eight months earlier. And during this time, a civil war had broken up in Bosnia. So she was in first year medical school. And when the war broke out, she lost all contact with her family from the village that she came from. And during the war, very little power, food scarcity, very little money. My dad was a fairly successful entrepreneur over there in Bosnia, but he had to sell all his properties, etc., so they can get to Croatia and buy a plane ticket to come to Canada. Now, from my mother's perspective, she's younger than I am currently. And I already described to you how difficult it was for me to move from Windsor to Toronto to pursue graduate school in Toronto as a person with family support. Now, my mother's perspective, she was 23, had moved home to go to medical school. So she already dealt with what I dealt with. But instead of me overcoming this with cognitive behavior therapy, anti-anxiety medication, supportive friends and family, for her, a war broke out. And she had to flee the country with a newborn son and a new husband 
come to Canada as a refugee, and then the first contact she had with her mother was after two and a half years, and she called my grandmother, her mother, and basically it's like, hi, I'm in Canada. I'm on the other side of the ocean now. And she would not go on to see her mother again for eight years. Wow. And by the way, I'm now married to a person you've never met, and I have a kid who you also won't meet for eight years. And my mom has worked so incredibly hard in her life. She, in Canada, has become a registered nurse. She went to school now, post-secondary, in a country where English wasn't her first language. So she developed her English abilities, went to school, is now a registered nurse, has been working in the intensive care unit for years as a woman now who's about 50. So the work is physically demanding, she's struggling, and she's always under this pressure. When is she going to be able to retire in life? Because she started working late, and my family didn't have the privilege of you know, saving up money from a younger age. And I look at her, and what she does when she comes home from work is she'll put on something like Everybody Loves Raymond. Do you remember that show? Everybody Loves Raymond? I love Everybody Loves Raymond, yeah. Okay, well, I think, sure, I think it's actually an awful show. It's very yeah? Show. I think it's an awful show. I think most shows show. are shallow. Most, most shows are shallow. Are shallow. Yes. <laughs> and she would herself admit that she just needs something to get to bed at night. Because for her, every day is this personal struggle for her family and for herself. And now she's gone to a point where there's some more stability there. But she's also at a point where she's 50, and I think it's a bit more difficult for her to think about death, honestly. Because it's a bit scary when you're looking at it that closely. For me, I've had the, I guess, the opportunity to look at it from across the hallway, from across the canyon, whatever it is, from a distance. And I, I feel bad for her on that account. Yet, I also admire her because... Well, who couldn't admire the person that went through all that and came out of it functioning? But I guess my goal in life, as far as one can have some sort of single unified goal, is to prevent what happened to her. <laughs> to have people robbed of the opportunity, just as you described, what might be the one meaning of life is the ability to think on that very question. That was a long anecdote, but... That was inc one that's incredible. Yeah, Send your mother my love. <laughs> yeah, I, I will. I, I will. Keaton from Michigan says hello. <laughs> and I don't know if I translate this correctly, but he says he loves you. <laughs> <laughs> he actually would like to become your new husband. And... Yeah. I like my dad, too. I don't, I don't mean to diminish his struggle, but I think he had at least... He was older when all this happened, and he had, I think, a few more opportunities to confront some of these things from a position of security, which is a right. privileged position. But he obviously also had the same struggles of coming to a new country, working here. He was a person that was educated in Bosnia and came here, and the only work he can find to support his family was working in at one of the feeder plants for the big three. So I think also on your side of the border, that's a common enough story, the person that sure. works not quite in a unionized position at Ford, Chrysler, or GM, where you can make a pretty good living, but at a place where you're working really physically long hours and you're not quite getting that money where you feel like you're actually making a dent in your savings yeah. plan. So he's also, he's struggled as well personally, but I think if I talk to him, he's had enough time. I mean, he himself has come into my room unannounced before when my brother and I are playing video games and announced just really grandiose, like, I have decided or have come to the realization that there is no afterlife. There is no God. <laughs> this is our only life. So just enjoy. So, That's wonderful. Yeah, he's definitely preached more for acceptance. We have those arguments about struggle and about socialism or about 
social justice in any sort of sense. And he says, whatever, just, just be happy yourself. So I get mad at him when he says that, which is a really silly thing to get mad at when your father tells you that you should just be happy. <laughs> no, dad, I shouldn't be happy. I should be angry at the capitalist overlords. The man. And, yeah. So I'm glad I got to fit in two parent anecdotes. There you go. Neither of them could be upset <laughs> with me now. I got both of them in there. <laughs> Well, we can wrap it up there, but I definitely would like to talk again. Yeah, yeah, no, this is feels fantastic. like there's a lot to say. There's a lot to say. Um, you're in Toronto, you said. I'm in Toronto. Yes. Will you be in Toronto in June by chance? Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure, actually. Well, yeah. okay, cool. I'm going to Japan in June, but on my way back from Japan, I have a nine-hour layover in Toronto. Fantastic. So, if you want to get lunch or something. Fantastic. Totally. I would be more than happy to. Oh, I have tons of suggestions. Coming back from Japan, I won't bring you to the ramen restaurants. <laughs> because that seems like a bad idea. But we can get Vietnamese food. Awesome. Yes, well, that's good. I will see you then.